This is Hormones, the inside story, the podcast from the Society for Endocrinology about the tiny things inside us pulling the strings. Not to start this episode on a bum note, but every single one of you listening to this podcast is going to die. I'm going to die. Everyone we know is going to die. And if we're lucky, we get to grow old before that happens. But this ageing process can be very cruel. It can wear away our strength, our mobility and our cognitive function. We can lose our eyesight, our hearing and the memories that make us who we are. The quest to cure ageing has been going on for thousands of years. And unless there are any Arthurian knights in hiding we don't know about, it's been by and large unsuccessful. But could we finally be within reach of some genuine interventions that don't cure a specific disease, but prevent the ageing processes that led to them? I'm Georgia Mills, and in this episode, we're finding out whether we can hack our hormones to slow down ageing. I actually changed career because of a graph. So I started out toward the end of my physics PhD, sort of wondering what I was I was going to do with my life. And this graph is um, its actually quite a simple graph. It's the graph of how likely you are to die based on how old you are. This is Andrew Steele. He's a scientist and writer and the author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. And of course, all of us know that older people are more likely to die, but just how much really shocked me. So I'm currently in my 30s. That means my odds of death per year are somewhere in the region of one in a thousand. And I quite like those odds. But the problem is that those odds will carry on increasing as I get older. And in fact, they double in humans about every eight years. So that means if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 90s and there's no progress in medicine in the intervening time, my odds of death every year will be somewhere around one in six. That's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. And so, you know, as a human, you can look at that and think, well, that's terrifying. I've got this exponential wall of mortality coming towards me, you know, inevitably as time passes. But as a scientist, you can look at that and think, well, that's fascinating because, you know, what is it that causes the human body to go wrong in this incredibly synchronized way? This eight-year mortality risk doubling time, it's called, is universal across populations, across time, like wherever you look and whenever you look in the world, that's been a fact of human life. So the question is, you know, can we understand that? Can we do something about it? And can we potentially prevent all of the horrible things that happen, you know, in this synchronised way in our biology that we call ageing? Would it be fair to say you're not the first person to be bitten by, let's say, the ageing bug? I don't know if that's the right term. It's a fairly old pursuit of humanity, isn't it? It definitely is. And I think, you know, for as long as humans have been humans, we've been sort of contemplating what it means to get old and what it means to die. Um, You know, the first funereal rituals in humans go back... I think tens of thousands of years. Obviously, you know, looking back a few thousand years, we've got the pyramids, um, these enormous sort of icons to sort of life and mortality and death. And yeah, throughout the ages, people have been searching for the fountain of youth, whether it's been, you know, looking for the Holy Grail or whether it's been alchemists trying to turn lead into gold and thinking that this this philosopher's stone substance that could do that could also grant them eternal life. So there's this incredibly sort of long thread running through the whole of human existence. So it really is this incredibly universal phenomenon. So I guess it's natural that as soon as you get the ability to understand that that's coming for you, you do want to do something about it. When you were researching your book, did you come across any examples of people who really took this to the limit, this trying to discover this this philosopher's stone, this this fountain of youth? There have been all kinds of bizarre interventions throughout history. And I think probably my favourite was one um, that was actually in the 1920s. So sort of shockingly recently, this is sort of the beginnings of the era of modern medicine. You know, we, we knew what germs were by this point. And yet a touted and actually practised anti-ageing treatment was to take monkey testicles and surgically implant them into patients. And it was thought that would obviously you know, improve their virility, but also slow their ageing too. And that, you know, honestly doesn't sound very good for the person or for the monkey. <laughs> What is it? People have an obsession with grafting testicles on. It's not the first time I've heard of someone trying that. (laughs) The cure for all ills. 
Wow, yeah. And I know in the discourse about this, it ranges from the the more mundane things that could, you know, increase your health years by five years. And then there's people saying we can download our brain into computers and live forever. So it's a, it's a big spectrum, isn't it, of, of research ideas? It really is. And I think the, the, the things that I'm most excited about are the things that are more like just, you know, pills or they're like treatments that are basically extensions of things we already do. So there are quite a lot of ideas that are just, you know, medicines. They're just drugs in the, in the way that, you know, we currently understand them. In the same way that people take a preventative statin if they are at risk of heart disease to try and, you know, reduce the level of cholesterol in their blood and make them less likely to have a heart attack. We could imagine taking a preventative pill that slows down your aging. And, you know, I think sort of lumping it together, as it often is in the media, with things like mind uploading, like that's just a, an a zany far future idea really because if you think about we don't even know where the mind is stored in the brain we don't even know where and how the memories are stored exactly so potentially you're going to have to make these you know ridiculously precise microscopic slices through the whole brain download its whole structure onto a computer it's going to require petabytes of data potentially i think we're going to have cured aging biologically and you know got people living much much healthier longer lives long before we're in a position where we can start to emulate humans inside computers and i know we'd need computers to be a, a lot more consistent if we were to be happy with that <laughs> yeah you certainly don't want the uh, blue screen of death in your uploaded mind do you <laughs> And so, I mean, this is a hormones podcast, but aging is a, is a massively complicated thing. Is there like a single mechanism behind aging? Is there a big clock inside us all ticking away? Do we know what causes it? I think there probably isn't a single clock. It's not to say there definitely isn't because we're still digging into exactly what causes aging. But it looks more likely that it's a whole range of processes and hormones are definitely uh, a sort of part of those processes. The kind of aging principle probably fundamentally boils down to, you know, changes to DNA in our in our cells and DNA aging. And um, in some ways, the endocrine system might just be an innocent bystander for all of that. So I don't think for one minute that, um, you know, the endocrine system is controlling aging, but it does change with age. This is Professor Paul Stewart. He's the Professor of Endocrinology and Medicine at the University of Leeds, who's interested in slowing down the ageing process. Paul took me through some of the hormone changes that mark a life course. Some of them are dramatic, like the menopause, but that one's getting its own episode, so we'll park it for now. But there are some age-related changes in our hormones that affect every single one of us. Growth hormone changes quite dramatically, actually. So our peak growth hormone levels, you know, as you know, the, the clues in the title, we need growth hormone to grow. And the fact that I'm over six foot means I've had a bit more growth hormone than most because growth hormone effectively is how we achieve, you know, our skeletal height and bone maturity. Um, but from the age of 30 onwards, we progressively have a declining growth hormone around about 10% every decade. And because growth hormone is a uh, what we call an anabolic hormone it's building muscle mass it's building uh, some of our metabolic processes it's easy to see how that fall in growth hormone has been associated with things like muscle wasting with age a reduction in bone mineral density you know an increase in in fat mass so huge excitement there in terms of the changes of growth hormone with age yeah and there's another hormone Paul is particularly interested in, and it's one you'll definitely recognise, especially if you're paying attention to series one. Cortisol is a, is a fascinating hormone. It's slightly different with ageing because we know actually in the circulation that cortisol levels don't really change very much. We all make more cortisol in the times of stress. It's a stress hormone. It's the way we cope with stressful situations, with infection. But it's also a key hormone determining, you know, our day-to-day -day living, well-being, um, the way we handle food and nutrients, the way we control our body composition. 
so uh, you might think, well, why is this relevant then in ageing? Well, what, what's important here in the, in the cortisol story is not what's going on in the circulation, but what's going on in tissues. So there's a very crucial enzyme that's actually important for generating cortisol locally in tissues such as muscle, fat, liver, independent of what's going on in the circulation. So circulating levels don't change, but we know that in some of the, these key tissues, such as bone, such as liver, such as muscle, cortisol levels are increasing because of the expression of this enzyme that we're interested in. It's got a very long name, 11-beta-hydroxysteroidehydrogenase. Let's just call it 11-beta-HSD1 for, 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 for simplicity. That's the nickname. That's the short one. <laughs> that's the short one. And that's the enzyme that's exciting in terms of the ageing process because that's an enzyme that's going up with age and probably delivering more cortisol locally in some of these key tissues. And we've shown certainly in animal models and in preclinical experiments that that is really bad news. That does give you an unfavourable you know, propensity to diabetes. It does result in some of the changes in our body composition with a predilection to uh, central obesity as opposed to the earlier fat distribution. And, and something I'm particularly interested in, you know, the integrity of things like skin, of bone and of muscle, which we see slowly wasting away with ageing, is it important in that process? The reason this lengthily named enzyme is so important isn't actually directly to do with cortisol, but with its shadowy relative. So although I've talked about cortisol as the active stress hormone, in our circulation we actually have two hormones circulating at any one time, one of which is cortisol, which is the active hormone. The other one is a hormone called cortisone, which is like a shadow cortisol, but is inactive. And what this enzyme, this clever enzyme can do is it can take the inactive cortisone in the circulation and generate active cortisol from that. So that effectively is, is what's key. And as I say, this enzyme is expressed at very high levels in, in our liver, where we've shown it's important in modulating glucose output from the liver. In bone, where it's regulating osteocalcin and other key bone markers of bone formation in the skin in terms of regulating collagen breakdown and also in muscle where we think it's got a key role in terms of you know muscle bulk and muscle function so those are the main sites of its expression which is obviously exciting again in terms of the aging changes as we get older our levels of cortisol and cortisone don't change enormously unless of course we're very very stressed but the activity of this enzyme is on the up so cortisone is converted into cortisol in some of our organs, which means that the levels of the stress hormone start to go up. Now to find out what this does, Paul did an experiment in mice using genetic engineering to knock out the genes that code for the enzyme to see what happens when it isn't there at all. These mice have accelerated wound healing. They have differences in, in muscle metabolism and, and, and muscle mass changes in body composition and some of the preclinical work we've gone on to do in man suggests that um, you know that might be important in, in bone changes as well with aging so there's little snippets of the jigsaw starting to fit into place the mouse studies are very powerful but the enzyme's slightly different in the mouse to man do you think this could hold the key to an intervention which could increase health span I genuinely do. You know, if, as we go back to the, the principles I was talking about of ageing, I mean, most of the reasons why we age badly now are because of all the chronic diseases we accumulate with ageing. 
Of course, lifestyle has to be a, still a major endgame there. But actually manipulating tissue levels of cortisol, I think, could play a huge role in being beneficial in that process. And that's, that's what we're aiming to do here. Of course, persuading a pharmaceutical company to then embark on what would be long term, you know, phase three clinical trials is a is another issue. So that's why we're now carving it up and going down. Well, let's look at a wound healing program. Let's separately look at a a muscle wasting program or a bone osteoporosis program, because that's more easily divisible to do rather than just how are we going to age, you know, which would be an impossible study to fund and and execute. Um, but but yes, is the answer to that question. We're, we're certainly committed that we think this might be a key part of the aging process. Yeah. Cortisol obviously is associated very strongly with stress. Do we know anything about how stress impacts this aging process? If you have a very stressful life, does that make you get older? You know, it's a really good question, the whole role of stress and ageing. And um, I remember seeing those dreadful pictures of Tony Blair ageing when he was Prime Minister. You know, at that level, people with those huge demanding jobs and you see a dramatic change in them. With yeah, So, of course, there's something in it. Whether it's cortisol, I think, is is more guarded. Yes, if you've got repeated stress, you could end up in that prolonged situation. But the kind of stresses that that you and I would be exposed to in a normal day, they're rapid onset and rapid offset. So I can't believe that the kind of, you know, stress would have a big impact acting via cortisol to cause some of those changes, except in a, a very unusual situations. So there may be a cortisol related intervention coming soon. And in the meantime, probably don't become Prime Minister. Paul is keen to stress that these interventions aren't about upping the number of years we're alive, but it's about helping us enjoy those years more, which is a really important part of this type of research. With improved um, healthcare, vaccinations, better nutrition all round, uh, lifespan has been increasing at approximately two years per decade, uh, really for the last century. Uh, and this is quite dramatic if you think of it in another way. A child born yesterday has a five hours more lifespan expectancy than one born today. So very dramatic. But the time we spend in good health, which is called health span, hasn't been keeping space. So this has only been um, increasing at about half of the same uh, rate. So now on average, um, uh, adults will spend the last decade of life in ill health. So big impacts for us socially with an older population if it's unwell. This is Professor Janet Lord. She's the director of the Institute of Inflammation and Ageing at the University of Birmingham. She looks at how hormones, ageing and our immune system all interact. Naturally, as, as you do get older, our ability, to, for example, to repair damage in our tissues declines. So you do get a build-up of, of damaged cells uh, and organs in your body. And certainly a decline in your immune system means you're less able to fight infections. And of course, we're all aware with coronavirus of, of the impact of that, because over 90% of our patients who've had serious COVID-19 or passed away uh, are over the age of 65. So the endocrine system um, really does interact very closely with your immune system. Now cortisol, which we were just talking about, dampens down our immune system. But there's another less famous hormone that's no less important. It's called dehydroepiandrosterone or DHEA for short. 
DHEA generally um, enhances our immune system. And DHEA, its other job, it's actually its main function is to produce androgens, these, these sex hormones. And so DHEA has lots of other importance in your body. It helps you maintain muscle and bone. And it also turns out it's important for mood. Sadly, what happens with age, so the viewers will have heard of menopause, the decline in the sex hormones um, with age. But there's another pause, adrenopause. And this is the decline in DHEA with age, which begins at around the age of 30. So those in the audience thinking, I'm fine, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm young. No, it begins around 30 and it's a very gradual decline. So this change with age really in, in this particular hormone really has wide effects on your um, body, not just your immune system. Why is it called adrenopause? Because I would associate adrenal with adrenaline. Is that just to confuse people like me? <laughs> no, not at all. So, so DHEA and cortisol are both made by the adrenal glands. And the part of the adrenals that makes DHEA is called the zona reticularis. And that begins to shrink as we get older. Um, and that's why you make less of it as you get older. So that's why it's called adrenopause, because it's uh, an effect on the adrenal glands. Amazing. I love all these names. It sounds like something from a sci-fi, like the planet of Zonar Reticularis. I know. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Our immune system is full of white blood cells, and the most prominent types are called neutrophils. These neutrophils depend directly on the hormone DHEA. And we have shown in our research that DHEA is um, able to directly increase the ability of these cells to kill bacteria. So if you're older and at uh, times of a, an infection you, you haven't, you're not able to raise your DHEA levels, then your neutrophils don't function as well and there's much more chance that you're not going to be able to fight that uh, infection like pneumonia. So really powerful consequences for your immune system. Given how important DHEA is for maintaining immune function, Janet and her team are now running clinical trials at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham to see if it can help people recover from serious accidents. So we've got older patients who've had a hip fracture and we've got young patients who, for example, have been in a road traffic accident because we know at times of stress that your DHEA falls really dramatically. Even if you're young, it really falls down and the cortisol goes up. But we don't know the results yet. We're, we're in the middle of the trial where we are giving the DHEA, but our hope is that it will help the immune system. Do you ever see this becoming not only an intervention, but seeing as it has all these uh, sort of ageing impacts, do you ever see a stage where people will be popping a DHEA supplement just as a par for the course? I do personally, yes I do. In fact, this does happen in the US, but it's really interesting. So another study reported in 2019 and they gave a cocktail of three agents, growth hormone um, in combination with DHEA, and with a drug called metformin, which is used to treat type 2 diabetes. And they gave this cocktail to older males for a year and they uh, measured their biological age, not their chronological age. How old were these guys biologically? And they managed to reverse their age by on average two years. So it's wow. really interesting. If you restore some of these hormones, so this is growth hormone DHEA, 
to the level that they were in a younger person, it actually slowed down the aging in these older males. So although we need a lot more trials, actually I could see that happening, that we might, just like we're pop a statin if we've got high cholesterol, we might pop DHEA to try and keep our hormone levels at the level they were when we were 30 years old. Just to be careful here, we are not advocating going out and trying this. There is still lots of work to be done. But saying that, coming into this program, I was expecting the usual science communication dance. The hopeful and overhyped headlines and then the scientists telling everyone to calm down. But everyone I've spoken to seems genuinely excited about interventions coming in the future, which may be able to halt age-related decline. But lest we make the same mistakes as our testicle grafting forebears, we still need to proceed with caution. You can buy it over the counter in the US. The downside is because it's not a regulated drug in the US, the, it's not always sold correctly, as it were. Or, or So, for example... Quite a few years ago now, we bought um, some DHA for 10 different suppliers in the US and found that only two of those actually contained the DHA it should. Oh, wow. So, so although it's good that it's readily available, it needs to be regulated properly. And so maybe we're well on the way to living without the problems ageing brings with it. In fact, I'd go as far as to say the answer to the question, can we hack our hormones to slow down ageing, is a resounding, probably soon? But in the meantime, what can we do to live long enough to make it to a time these interventions are ready? The good news is that only 20% of your ageing comes down to your genetics. The other 80% is lifestyle. So kick the cigarette habit, stop drinking, exercise more. No surprises there. And Andrew Steele has found a lot of advice while researching his book. The other thing that learning a bit more about ageing biology can do is illuminate some less conventional bits of health advice. And I think one of my favourite is to uh, brush your teeth. Bad gums apparently don't just mean bad breath. They can wear your immune system down in a never-ending battle against bacteria, which drives ageing. It seems to be able to increase the risk of uh, cardiovascular problems. There's also even a hint it might increase the risk of dementia because we found the bacteria associated with gum disease in the brains of people who have dementia. Now, it's not clear whether that's cause or effect. It could be that those bacteria are taking advantage of the diseased brain to sort of sneak in and be opportunists. In any case, I'm not going to wait for the studies to find out the results uh, to that question. I'm just going to carry on brushing and flossing and making sure I have really, really tip-top oral hygiene to try and, you know, hopefully not just reduce my dentist bills, not just reduce my tooth pain, but also increase my lifespan as well. Thanks so much to Paul Stewart, Janet Lord and Andrew Steele. Next time, we'll be continuing our investigation of ageing with a look at the menopause, the hormones that drive it and what we can do about it, but also finding out whether there's really a male equivalent, the menopause. Yeah, this is a multi-billion dollar business. You know, the, the whole concept of testosterone and testosterone deficiency plugs into the male you know, sense of self-identity. You and Your Hormones is a podcast from the Society for Endocrinology. Explore more about the wonderful world of endocrinology at yourhormones.info. You can find them on Twitter at SOC underscore E-N-D-O and you can find them online at endocrinology.org. This show was produced by me, Georgia Mills. Katani is the executive producer and it was made by First Create the Media. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>